My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's always an honor to speak from God's word uh, to you this morning. Uh, I'll echo Josh uh, this morning about welcoming the college students here. I was the college pastor here for several years, and I love it. I'll be honest with you. I even love the traffic. Um, I just, it means you're back. And I just love that so much. Some of my closest friends, partners in ministry have come out of the college ministry. And I was reflecting this morning, if you just took away all the students over the last decade of this church, it would be quite a loss. And so I love this time of year because the potential that's in this room, a lot of people I don't know yet and I'm eager to get to know and I'm, I'm interested to see how you'll impact our church uh, the next few years that you're here. So we're glad that you're here. A warm welcome from us. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 8. I uh, love this psalm, and I'm excited again to share this with you. Uh, this has been a weird year in a lot of ways. Uh, you don't need me to remind you of that, but one of the unique things that's come out of it that's been a blessing for our family is that we've eaten more family dinners together than we ever have. I think we strung together maybe, I think we were in the 70s back in March and April of like consistent dinners together. Um, and so one of the things we decided to do early on as a family was to memorize scripture. We've never done that before as a family, and I thought now's the time. And so genius that I am with my five kids, 10 and under, I thought, let's memorize the book of Colossians. Seemed like a great project for us, and uh, we're still going to do that, maybe before they graduate. We got through about 10 verses, and I thought, you know what, maybe we need to back it off a little bit and do a, something a little bit more lighthearted. Let's go to the Psalms. And so I went to Psalm 8, knowing that it was a nature psalm, thinking this would be a little bit of a lighter psalm. <laughs> little did I know what I was getting into when we went to Psalm 8. What a brilliant psalm this is. As I have meditated on this with my family for the past several months, I'll tell you, it has transformed my thinking. My, my vision of God has expanded. My appreciation for God's nature has expanded. I've been outside way more as a result of this. My understanding of the Bible has expanded. This is a key text in biblical theology. It goes all the way from Genesis to the triumphal entry to the throne room of Christ. It's all over, quoted many times in the New Testament. My understanding of my own purpose and calling has expanded. So I'm excited about studying Psalm 8 with you. I'll stop talking about it. Let's read it now. Let's look at Psalm 8. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just continue to celebrate your majesty and your glory that we've been celebrating all morning long. Your creator, your savior, you've given us your word, and we celebrate you and we praise you. Truly, how majestic is your name. We're gonna to come to this psalm now, and I pray that our hearts are open before you as our Bibles are also open before us, God. 
May we receive what you want us to receive and may our vision of you and our appreciation and our celebration of you this morning be expanded through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've mentioned, we've had to absorb absorb a lot of really difficult news this year, but not all of it has been bad. There's been some unexpected blessings in 2020, like perhaps eating dinner together a lot. I've enjoyed that. I thought I'd share this, start this morning by sharing a couple of headlines that have been mildly encouraging, at least entertaining, that I thought were uh, appropriate for our text this morning. I read uh, about a, a small town in Wales, a coastal town that was invaded by wild mountain goats. Did you hear about this? Apparently these wild mountain goats had been in the mountains uh, for years and they had often gotten up to the edge of the city but when humans went inside, they thought they would just come and eat all the shrubbery in the town and so there we are, it's infested this little town. I thought that was funny. I also saw a really beautiful picture of a coyote on the turnout of the Golden Gate Bridge and apparently this coyote coyote mustered up the courage to cross the bridge. You think about how little traffic was on the road back in March and April for this coyote to go across the Golden Gate Bridge. I also read some reports about the city of Los Angeles. This is fascinating. With all of the traffic shut down and a lot of the industry shut down, the citizens of LA saw something that many of them had never seen. Blue sky. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's the color. There we go. It just cleared up. Can you imagine that? I actually read a report that there is a new hobby in Southern California, stargazing. People are getting out to look at the sky because they can finally see the sky. I want you to think about that for just a second. For the past several hundred years, humans have been in a big old rush. We're going from one place to the next place, never stopping to look up the sky, never stopping to look around and remember that we share the world with animals. We have been in a big old hurry. And it's easy when we live that way, looking at our screens, our heads have gone from the heavens down. (laughs) We literally look down, there's a WebMD article on text neck. We've put our heads down uh, on our screens. It's easy to forget if we live in that kind of existence that we live in a created world. Maybe that's what we've wanted. We've kicked God out of the universe and we didn't want to remember that we live in a created world. But when our world came to a screeching halt, A lot of people went outside. Have you noticed this? Have you been to the Greenway and seen how many people are hiking and exercising and running? It's a wonderful thing. It's been a hard year, but we'll celebrate where we can. This has been a huge step. And I think this is a good step for us to get outside. And I think actually it prepares us to read Psalm 8. It's one of several nature Psalms in the Bible that celebrates God's creation. As David went outside, it's a nighttime Psalm. There's mention of the moon and the stars, not the sun. David is just taking in the glory of God in the middle of the night and he worships the splendor of God's majesty. He had nothing other, nothing in mind other than the pure glory of God. He wasn't trying to tackle a work problem or a, a relationship problem or a pandemic problem. He just wanted to praise God. That's what Psalm 8 is about. But listen to this as he reflected on God's power and creation and God's unique plan for his creation and for the humans in his creation. He discovered a unique, powerful truth to help him navigate a crazy world. So maybe one of the best things that we can do in a pandemic, in a crazy, tumultuous year is to simply get outside and worship the God of creation. Psalm 8 will be our guide as we do that. 
Let's look at the text. This is how I'd like to outline this sermon. We're gonna look at the majesty of God's name, verse one and nine. And in the body of the text, we're gonna look at why God's name is so majestic. Majesty of God's name and why it's so majestic. So let's first look at the majesty of God's name. When you read a psalm, here's just a tip for reading Hebrew poetry. The first thing you wanna look for to understand a psalm is the structure. Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, which uh, is based on rhymes, it was based on structure. See, in our, in our music, the way that we get a point across is that we, we rhyme, and that's how the power of it comes through. That's not how Hebrew poetry was, and it's a good thing for us because it never would have translated well. So instead, in the Hebrew poems, they, they based it on structure. That's where David made his impact. And so as you look at Psalm 8, just take a glance down there. What do you see about the structure that sticks out to you? The first line and the last line are identical. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is the main point of the text. And so if we come away with this sermon from this text with anything other than the majesty of God, we focused on the wrong thing. David wants us to celebrate the majesty of God. And so what is God's majesty? It's a nice churchy word. We often use it in, in kind of in conjunction with the word glory. We sing a lot about God's glory. We spoke of his majesty quite a bit this morning. When we talk about that, what are we talking about? They are very similar, but there's a subtle distinction between majesty and glory. Glory, the, you might be interested to know, just simply means weight. When you glorify anything, you give it weight. You give it power and strength, right? And so if you glorify your money, you have a, a weighty wallet. If you glorify learning and knowledge, it means that your brain has weight to it, right? And so when we glorify God, we're just giving him all, all the glory to his name. God is glorified because God is God. It's not another attribute of God. It's the sum total of all of God's attributes. God is glorified because he just is God. All of him, it's just, he's weighty. He has worth. We don't add to his glory. We ascribe glory to him. So what is majesty? Majesty. Majesty is the open display of that glory. It's when he peels back the curtains and lets us see his glory. I like how the great H.B. Charles Jr. talks about majesty. He says majesty is when God starts showing off. And so from the first line in this text, David is praising the majesty of God. He's showing off in the universe. But look a little closer. What specifically is so majestic about God? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh Yahweh, our Adonai. We can celebrate God's majesty because he has revealed his name. David was in awe that the sovereign God of the universe had revealed himself. Don't overlook how brilliant of a fact that is, friends. We get to worship a God. We get to know that God who we worship. We get to know him because he has made himself known in scriptures. He has stooped down to tell us who he is and what he is like. We don't have to make assumptions or make any guesses about what God is like. He has clearly told us when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush all those years ago and he said, my name is I am Yahweh. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and in mercy. We don't have to guess what God is like. We get into big trouble when we make assumptions and guess what God is like. People do this all the time. Let me give you a crude example, but I think it will illustrate the point here. Do you remember how Adolf Hitler spoke of God? 
might be interested to know that he actually spoke about God, but he did. But he twisted it. He, he called God the Almighty. Now, is God Almighty? Of course, God is Almighty. But in Hitler's mind, that's all God was. He just singled out one specific attribute of God pure force, raw power, strength, that suited his own twisted desire to take over the world. But that's not the God that we find in the Bible. Almighty, yes, but also stooping to be with, with the lowly and the, and the poor. That version of God has no majesty. It just causes a lot of misery. I think a modern example of this is when we speak of God's love. Now, is God loving? More so than we'll ever know. And so it is very appropriate to speak of God's love. But I feel like sometimes we speak of God's love to justify a lot of things that he's not revealed and he's not allowed us to. And so let us worship God as he has revealed himself in the scripture. The psalm invites us to do just that. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's celebrate his holy name as we move into the body of the text, we're gonna see why David was so enamored with God's name, this revelation of God. He's going to highlight one characteristic about this amazing God that is truly shocking and truly worth our praise. This is the second part of the outline, why God's name is so majestic, and it covers the body of the text. Verse two takes a dramatic and unexpected turn. After this majestic introduction, David says these words. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This verse reveals two lessons. The first is very uh, expected. There's nothing surprising about the first lesson. It's this, God has enemies. Again, if you look at the structure, there's three synonyms. He has enemies, he has a foe, he has an avenger. There's nothing surprising about this. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis chapter three, spiritual forces, violent men have sought to overthrow God. If you follow God, you will have opposition as well. This is a biblical theme through and through. Um, God has enemies. It's the first lesson and it's not that surprising. But the second lesson is so absurd, it, it's almost hard to take in. We learn that God establishes strength. The word there is a bulwark. He establishes his plan against his enemies. How? through the mouth of babies and infants. How does that work? That, that makes no sense from a human perspective. Babies have nothing to offer the world. They cannot fight for God in terms of productivity. They're cute, right? We go, oh. But they can't really do anything for God. They can't fight for God. Maybe they can drool on God's enemies and spit up on God's enemies or, or make them run from a stench or something, but they can't fight for God. What is David talking about? They're extremely vulnerable. Babies can't make it more than an hour or two without crying out for help. And I, and I think that's the point David wants us to get here. They're very vulnerable. All they have is needs and they cry out to get them. I think that's what David wants us to grasp. Now, it might help to think of Psalm 8 in its immediate context. And yes, it does have an immediate context. You might think that the Psalms are kind of just dropped in a bucket and shaken up and put out however they want. But there is a logic to the way that the Psalms are structured. Psalm 1 and 2 is a, is a great introduction to the book. But immediately, the very beginning of the book of Psalms, you're going to find a collection of individual laments from David. Some of his weakest, most vulnerable moments in life when he was on the run from Absalom 
when he was hiding in a cave in a desert in the wilderness. He just cries out, help me, God. Help me, my enemies are rising up. The waters are coming up to my neck. If you don't save me, I'm gonna die. If you were reading through the book of Psalms for the first time, and you read Psalm 3, and Psalm 4, and Psalm 5, 6, and 7, you might begin to think that David's got some problems. Like, what is wrong with you, David? You are such a wimp. You are the king. Pull out your sword and take care of business. But that's not how David worked. David learned to cry out to God and become vulnerable and weak and ask for help. When you get to Psalm 8, you resolve the tension. Not only does God tolerate these needy prayers of lament, that is actually God's brilliant way of establishing strength against his enemies through babies and infants, through the weak humans and beings that he has called, through the faithful and honest prayers of his servants. Do you cry out to God? This is his way of establishing strength. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we get to the New Testament, this is what I love about Psalm 8. It just explodes in color in the New Testament. We see this applied all over the place. You see it on Christmas morning, actually. You remember when Jesus was born, the powerful great King Herod, he did turn to the sword, but did it work for him? It never works. It never works. He tried to kill the baby king, but God had begun to unleash his brilliant plan of stilling his foes and enemies through a baby. It's God's beautiful plan. This verse actually comes up word for word on, on Palm Sunday. You can find the story in Matthew 21. I love this story. You remember Jesus came in on Palm Sunday on a donkey. And the people celebrated around him and they called Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And they were celebrating him. Well, soon after Jesus got into the city, he got off the donkey and he found himself surrounded by a group of ragtag, dirty men and women, the lame, the blind. I think Jesus loved it when these crowds celebrated. He just looked each one of them in the eye and the text said he had compassion on them and he reached out and he healed them. Well, the children were around dancing, singing. You know how children, when you sing a song in the morning, they just sing the song all day long. They were doing that. Later on in the afternoon, they were singing, Hosanna to the son of David. They kept on shouting out these praises. Well, it's a beautiful scene, but the powerful religious leaders, the one with the education, the one with the fancy robes, the one with the power, they looked at Jesus and they said, how dare you accept their praise? Do you know what they're calling you? These children are calling you God and you ought to know better. You ought to know your Old Testament. These children are calling you God. You know what Jesus did? He looked at him and he said, haven't you ever read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, I have established strength, I have ordained praise. Of course these men knew Psalm 8. They had taught Psalm 8, but they apparently had not grasped the true meaning of Psalm 8 verse 2. They did not have a category for God to do great things through weak people like children, like beggars, like lame people and blind people, and a Messiah on a donkey. But God loves to do great things through weak people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 God chose, this was his plan. 
He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Did you walk into church this morning feeling weak? Are you at your home this morning feeling weak? God chose what is weak. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's brilliant plan. He is working in and among weak people, babies and infants. This is his plan to shame the strong. And so one of the ways I think we can move towards, we can apply this text is to literally move towards weakness and vulnerability. That's not a natural turn. It's something that you've probably been fighting for your whole life, never wanting to be hungry, never wanting anybody to see your insecurity. You got laughed at when you were in elementary school and they will never see that side of me again. We work away from from weakness and we try to puff ourselves up and become strong. But I think the Bible tells us to go on a different journey. And in fact, if you have the spirit of God in you, he'll take you to the cross. He'll take you to the weakness because that's where God's power rests, in weakness. And so move towards vulnerability. I think there are a thousand ways to apply this text, but one of the great ways that we can do that is what we just did in our service. Did you feel the power of God in this room as we silenced ourselves before him? We like to fill our lives with a lot of noise and, and thoughts and ideas, but there's power when we slow down. Maybe take a day without eating. Empty yourself. Become weak. Here's a couple more suggestions. First, be around kids. If he has established his strength in babies and infants, you probably ought to be around a baby and an infant. You can learn a lot from a baby and from an infant and from a child. If you don't have any children in your life, we have incredible opportunities this fall and the afternoons and Sunday mornings for our children. I'm excited, I'm thrilled about it. It's a wonderful opportunity. Second, become friends with someone with special needs. Pray for someone with special needs. Learn from someone with special needs. What a beautiful group of people that's often sidelined, neglected, forgotten, especially in a pandemic. But I think this is one of the powerful ways that we can move towards God's strength. Ask Ronnie and Ann Margaret Wright about the people that they care for in their ministry. It's a strong group of people and you can learn a lot. Finally, consider our chosen ministry. There are a lot of kids in our backyard that need a family, foster care, adoption, in our own county, in our own backyard. That's a great way to move towards the weak and vulnerable people and find God's power there. Verse two teaches us that God is a great God, but he also uses small things to do his work. He loves, I should say, to use small things to do his work. This theme is extended in the rest of the psalm. We'll quickly look at this. Verse three, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, it seems like a kind of a jerky transition to go back, but David is just going back to the theme of the psalm, the glory and the majesty of God. And this time he does it under a starlit sky. As he gazed into the endless depths of the universe, he got lost in the greatness of God. Has this ever happened to you? When's the last time you've just gone outside and looked at the stars? Application of the text. Next clear night, go and look at the stars. An unfathomably large God created an impossibly large universe. Listen with his fingers. 
I love that. Jupiter, the giant planet that has four moons, got rolled up into a little ball with his index finger and his thumb. And he set it in the sky. Incredible. And as David tried to take in the, the greatness of the universe, he felt small. And that is the correct response. As I mentioned in the introduction, our world is getting outside again, including our family. We um, love to get outside. But as awesome as this is, a lot of the really big hikes around here have been flooded with people. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so sometimes we, we go on these hikes and it feels like Black Friday shopping where you're kind of like walking down the road. You're like, wait, this is weird. You wait in line for three hours to get a glimpse of a, of a waterfall and move on. So a few weeks ago, my family decided to get way out. We went to the edge of the Linville Gorge wilderness. And yes, wilderness is an appropriate word it was spectacular. We weren't around anybody and we, we, we got lost out on the edge of these just stunning views. As we walked around one corner, we got to this rock edge and we were looking at these crags. It was spectacular, jaw-dropping, breathtaking. One of my daughters looked up and she said, I feel small. I did too. And when you find yourself in God's creation and consider his greatness and the vastness of our world, it is natural to feel small. That's a correct response. But look at what David does next. I want you to pay close attention to this. He felt small, but he didn't feel insignificant. And I feel like that's the natural term for, for a lot of us that are, carry a lot of shame. We look up at the stars and we go, oh, I just feel small and worthless and Ugh, and we just hate ourselves. That's not what David did. He went as far as he could in the other direction. He felt small, but he remembered God loves to do great things through small people. And so he will outline four big truths about small humans. First, God thinks about small humans. Don't let that pass you by this morning. What is man that you are mindful of him? You are on God's mind. Maybe you feel guilty because you rarely think about God and your prayer life is just weak. Take comfort in this. God is always thinking about you. That's a powerful truth. The majestic God of the universe thinks about you. Second, not only does he think about you, he cares for you. What is the son of man that you care for him? This is a doctrine and a, and a thought and an idea that I don't think we focus on nearly enough. God is so kind. If you read this, you would know that God is really kind to you. If you would look around, God is kind. In fact, on one of our recent hikes, there was these ripe blueberry bushes. And I, thank you, God. We just picked these wild blueberries and I just took that as a beautiful sign of God's care and compassion for us. What is the son of man that you would care for us and do so many kind things for us? As a father shows compassion for his children, Psalm 103, so God shows compassion to those who fear him. Third, it's getting better. The majestic God has given small humans dignity. Did you notice the line that we sang this morning from John Lachelle's song, Show Me Your Glory? Beholding now your glory in a mirror. Take that in. Verse five. He has made humans a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us 
with that big church word, glory and honor. In the mirror, that's where you can find God's majesty on display in creating you. He's given you dignity. Now this is a drastically different picture of humanity than the one that we've inherited from our science books over the past 150 years. As Darwin tried to make sense of the world without God, he said that we're just a little bit higher than the animals. Not true. According to the Bible, we, it's completely flipped. We are just a little bit lower than the angels, than Elohim, the word there. Can you believe that? God has crowned humans with glory and with honor. You have been made in God's image and the person next to you has been made in God's image and they carry inherent dignity and inherent worth. I love how C.S. Lewis thought about people and I just I wanna share this quote from The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And these are as to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals with whom we joke, with whom we work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal hoarders and everlasting splendors. Now this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. You've never met an ordinary mortal soul. The person next to you is a child of God created in his image. So roommates, if you're already frustrated by the, or college students, I should say, if you're already frustrated by the roommate that they assign to you, remember, you're not rooming with a mere mortal. They have been crowned with glory and honor and worth and dignity. They deserve your prayers. They deserve your respect. Think about how our racial issues would dissolve if we grasped this truth. All men are created equal in God's image. What a beautiful truth this is. We need this. Fourth, last lesson. The majestic God has given small humans an incredible purpose. He thinks about us. He cares about us. He's crowned us with dignity and he's given us a job. Look at verse five, uh, six. We've been given dominion over the animals. He's put all things under our feet. God didn't just sit us, put us on the planet to kind of aimlessly wander around and to do, just waste away. No, God gave us a very powerful job to cultivate the world. As image bearers, we create, we steward, we shepherd, we bring our strengths and our gifts into this world. That is our job. You have something to offer the world. This is a wonderful thought. It's hard to believe that a God would leave this awesome task into our small little hands, but it's true. Another quote from C.S. Lewis, this time as he reflected on the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, which I think is fascinating that the current queen C.S. Lewis saw installed. We think of Queen Elizabeth as a dignified lady, but in those early days, she was just a young girl. And as C.S. Lewis reflected on that crowning, listen to what he said. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head as a symbol of the situation of all men. God has called humanity to be his vice regent on earth. Wow. You've been crowned with glory and honor. You have something to offer the world. 
He's chosen to use small things. So just a minute ago, I asked you, because in verse two it says go towards weakness, but I think simultaneously to apply this text, we need to move towards our authority and our, our dominion and this task that God has given to us. Yes, you are small, but you are not insignificant. And as I just reflected on this, I think this is happening all around our church. I think of the hundreds of volunteers that have labored, the ushers, the people that make these services work. I think of the people that planted the flowers outside. What a beautiful job that is that just brightens up this church. I think of the Bible study leaders that lead well. I think of the business owners that run businesses with integrity. And I think of the employees that show up and make those businesses work faithfully day in and day out. I think of the students who take their studies seriously and that lead their clubs well. The moms and dads that cultivate warm, inviting households. The kids that do their chores with a happy heart. What a great task that God has called us to, to step into authority, to do great things. That's our job. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David ends the Psalm where he began it, coming back to the majesty and the glory and the celebration of Yahweh, of God's name. This is a great psalm about a great God and it gives us some great truths about ourselves and I hope you will learn to apply it this week. But before we close, and I'm done here, I just gotta ask an honest question. If Psalm 8 is true, this is truly a spectacular psalm and it has showed humans that yes, we're small but God has a, a beautiful plan for us and it's a wonderful picture. If that is true, how do we explain the mess that we have in 2020? It's an honest question. We've been crowned with glory and honor and dignity and a purpose, but the headlines tell us a different story, doesn't it? Do we really have dominion over the animals? Here's a, just a, a silly example of this. This is a nighttime psalm, and I wanna prepare for my message out of doors, under the stars, um, and so I thought I need to get outside in the evenings to prepare for Psalm 8. But our backyard has been terrorized by a raccoon. And I felt a little funny going outside and laying in the backyard because there's an animal. Do I really have dominion over the animals? Think about the pandemic for a second. All of the, I'm not an epidemiologist, but most of these viruses come from an animal. And what I've read, this has most likely come from a pangolin bringing the world to its knees. Earlier this summer, a tick, a tiny little tick bite caused our family quite a bit of energy and money and attention. Do we really have dominion over the animals? Do you feel that tension? Is it true? Is Psalm 8 like a nice sentimental poem that's like we can read about, but it didn't, didn't really describe our world now? Do you feel that tension? Because I do. And actually, it might make you feel better that the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews felt that tension as well. And so I just wanna close just by taking a glimpse at a very complex argument here in Hebrews, but it's worth just a brief attention. The author of Hebrews wrote this letter to a group of people that was struggling more than we are right now. They were rapidly shrinking and they were on the brink of an incredible persecution and he felt the brokenness of the world and he wrote them a letter to tell them that Jesus is okay. He's better. You're gonna be okay because Jesus is enthroned. And so in chapter two of Hebrews, he quoted Psalm 8 at length. You can go there if you want to. I'll have it here on the screen. He actually affirmed the truth of the psalm because as we learned in 2 Peter, David didn't just write a sentimental poem. 
David was carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit and it is trustworthy and it is absolutely true. And so when the author of Hebrews wanted to encourage his church, he said, you have been crowned with glory and with honor and God has put all things under your feet in subjection. He left nothing outside of your control. But then, to comment on the psalm, he said this, at present though, we don't see everything in subjection to humans. Humans do have glory and honor. It is true, but it has been twisted. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we have believed lies about God, we have believed lies about ourselves. we have believed lies about our neighbor, and we have been slaves to sin and death. And that twists the true meaning of Psalm 8 the truth of Psalm 8. Instead of stewarding God's creation, we destroy it. Instead of treating others with honor and dignity, we use other people. Instead of bringing God glory, we bring our kingdom glory and make our own name great and add weight to our own little worth. So Hebrews is right. We don't see everything in subjection to humanity. And focus in on that word see. We don't yet see it. Who we are is not yet seen. We're out of control. You can't see the truth of Psalm 8 in 2020. But you want to know what you can see? Keep reading. Look at verse 9. Here's where it gets so good and where the tension is resolved. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, the first time his name is mentioned in Hebrews, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the true fulfillment of Psalm 8. He fulfilled this word. He did what you and I failed to do. He lived a perfect life and died the death we should have. And because of that, the Bible tells us he is greatly exalted actually right now. And you can see that. It's what we worship here in church this morning. It is true. It's a reality. It's the message of Hebrews. It's the message of the Bible. Jesus has triumphed and done what we could not do. All things are subject to him. All things are under his feet. He is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 8's true. It's just about Jesus. You might not see it now. You might not feel it now in 2020, but it is true in Christ. And you can believe it this morning in faith. Jesus is Lord. Because he tasted death for everyone, he has triumphed over all things. He has dominion over the coronavirus. He has dominion, even death, even sin. It is under his feet. And he is coming back. It's the message of 2 Peter that we'll return to next week. He's coming back to restore all things and to restore our position in the world. It's happening. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.